Welcome to 15 Minutes of Feminism, part of our On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine platform. As you know, we report, rebel, and we tell it just like it is. And on 15 Minutes of Feminism, we count the minutes in our own feminist terms. Now, in this series, we are returning to the Trump indictments. And joining us in this episode is Professor Anthony Michael Christ, who's had a front row seat to the ongoing affairs in the state of Georgia, where the former president, along with co-conspirators, has been indicted. Sit back and take a listen. Thank you so much for joining us. Our Ms. audience has really appreciated the conversation that we've had about the Trump indictments. And there's a lot of controversy, it seems, around the indictments uh, in Georgia. They don't include just the former president, Donald Trump. They also include co-conspirators. As well, there are non-indicted co-conspirators. So to just catch people up, what does that mean that there are non-indicted co-conspirators and about 30 of them? And then what does it mean that there are co-conspirators that are being charged and indicted under RICO? So first of all, it's it's really great to be back. Um, but I, I think it's important to understand that particularly with the unindicted co-conspirators, there are a lot of moving parts. So some people may not have been indicted simply because um, they their level of criminality is just not worth it uh, to pursue. And so there's a, a question of prosecutorial discretion here where the DA has maybe decided that um, the, the resources are not best funneled or channeled uh, towards those people or prosecuting them. The other issue is that many of the fake electors and, and an untold number of other people who would otherwise have been potentially indicted received immunity deals or have cooperation agreements with the district attorney's office. So, for example, um, there were a couple of lawyers who were in on this the famous phone call with Donald Trump um, who who were called to testify in a hearing by the district attorney's office, and they, they were clearly cooperating with the DA. Um, and so those are the kinds of people who may fit in that, you know, 33 um, unindicted co-conspirator group. And then in terms of the, the co-conspirators, um, I, I think there are two diverging tactics here between Fonnie Willis here in Fulton County and the D.C. case brought by special counsel Jack Smith, where Jack Smith is really looking for an expeditious uh, vehicle for justice in order to bring Donald Trump to account for what he did um, allegedly before January 6th and in his attempts to overturn the election in 2020, um, but without the the kind of cumbersome dynamics of having multiple co-defendants. And so here in Georgia, we have a RICO claim with these 19 different defendants. Um, and the, the, the basic thrust is, is that while all of those defendants did slightly different things and engaged in slightly different um, discrete acts of criminal activity. Um, they all were engaged in one unlawful purpose, which was to overturn the 2020 election. And they did so without kind of a universally express overt agreement so that nobody, none of these folks really got together, all 19 of them, and decided at one point in time uh, that they knew exactly what they were going to do and they were going to plan in this uh, this criminal act and, and that right, they agreed. And, and to be clear, the law doesn't require that, right? So for anybody who is thinking, well, they didn't get together in a hotel room 
in Atlanta and all come together at one point. Therefore, the prosecutor is exceeding uh, her reach or the prosecutors are exceeding their reach. That's not what this is about, as you're explaining. Right. It's it's not a traditional conspiracy where, again, you know, two people or three people get together, have dinner and drinks and say, hey, let's engage in this criminal act. And then one person does something in furtherance of that conspiracy um, you know, to, to actually advance it. And then they're on the hook for a, a conspiracy based crime. You know, here there are just all sorts of moving parts. And these these folks are essentially part of one machine, one wheel. Uh, they are all cogs in that machine. They just don't necessarily know how they relate to one another, but they all know that they're working together in a very abstract way. And so that's that's what RICO essentially here is. Uh, Georgia RICO is a lot more permissive in the kinds of acts that can be brought together and, and yoked together uh, in comparison to the federal law. And, and, you know, I think there are plenty of conversations that criminal law experts will have about whether that's particularly dangerous or not, or whether it's a good law or whether it's right for abuse. I mean, I certainly think kind of as a uh, an observer here it is, um, but it's certainly within the parameters of of what Georgia Rico envisions in terms of what Fonnie Willis has, in, has brought in with these indictments. So if you could break it down for us in terms of what's been the drama behind the Georgia indictments thus far, you were already on and you gave us kind of a prequel, which was very prescient. And now what we know is that Mark Meadows has tried to get uh, his trial moved to federal court. Uh, We know that the former president uh, did appear. Many people were uh, quite surprised by that. There are the indicted who want their trials separate from others, and there are those that want speedy trials. What are some of the highlights? Oh, there's been, you know, not, not <laughs> there's been so much drama, it's it's not even funny. Um, you know, yeah, there, there's... No, been, you're totally right. You know, it is totally not funny. I mean, who would ever imagine <laughs> right now that a former president who has been uh, indicted in uh, on the federal level and in states has been found recently um, civilly liable for sexual assault uh, with a judge saying that actually that jury uh, recognized rape. It's only that a New York law did not define rape in the way in which we understand it today, but that rape was rape. I mean, this is the law itself as antiquated as it is, should perhaps reflect what is a common understanding today in terms of what rape is. And so you really can't make this up, even that this is a candidate for future office. Yeah. And and, and of course, the co-defendants too, right? Rudy Giuliani is facing a defamation trial from the Fulton County election workers, uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, which he has basically now lost in de- by default. Um, so there, there's a lot of moving parts all all over for for Donald Trump and his allies who have been indicted here. Um, I think if you know, just kind of hit on the maybe three big highlights, which I think you you really identified the the big ones is um, you know, since we last talked is um, Donald Trump and all of these co defendants came to Fulton County. They were booked. Uh, mug shots were taken. Um, I wouldn't say that they were treated anywhere near the average, uh, you know, person in Fulton County in the Fulton County jail going through that process had, you know, would be treated, but they certainly were not, um, given special dispensation in some respects. Um, they all had to come through the Fulton County jail and, and go through that process. Um, so that, that certainly was a, a moment, uh, to, to kind of witness. The second thing I think is this 
uh, you know, the, this question of timing. Uh, Fonnie Willis at the, the the night of the indictments said that she wanted to try all these cases within six months. Um, most of us thought that, that was pretty aggressive and ambitious and unlikely to happen. Uh, but we have two defendants in Kenneth Chesbro and uh, Sidney Powell who've asked for their statutory rights under Georgia law to go to trial at, beginning in October and November of this year. Um, and so we're going to have two trials uh, this year. And then and there's the biggest, the bigger question of well, what happens with the rest of the co-defendants, the other 17. When when do those trials happen? Do different uh, defendants get severed there? Will there be immunity deals or other kinds of co- cooperation agreements that'll change that timeline or make it more likely to happen sooner than not? Big big question. And then the other question is, you know, I think you're you're right to to call out the. Uh, Mark Meadows and uh, you know there's others who have asked for federal removal. Um, the idea being that they can conduct and have been prosecuted here in Fulton County for that conduct related to their federal duties. Um, it you know already Mark Meadows has lost in the district court with Judge Steve Jones. Uh, ruling that he was not engaged in uh, federally protected activities when he was working to overturn the election. And we can get into that more detail later if you want. Um, but that's that's the big kind of question now is who gets removed to federal court? Does anybody get removed to federal court? Does Donald Trump, who has 30 days after the arraignment to file for removal, so that'll be October 6th, um, does his attorney decide to move for remo- uh, go for removal and what kind of proceedings does that look like? Mark Meadows testified in federal court that was drama uh, of that a kind was drama I've in and of itself ever. because it, it was amazing it's so unheard of yeah i mean i i'll, I'll tell you what, what so, was he possibly expecting <laughs> i that's who knows i mean i so i think mark meadows is a mark meadows for for all his faults he's a great politician he's got a great politician's demeanor he's affable he's likable you, you you want to believe him in some sense. If you didn't, you know, really know um, anything else about him, you'd think, oh, well, this is just a nice guy from the Carolinas. It's not, you know, but when he, you know, he gets up there and, and is subjected to cross-examination, um, you know, the, the politician, the, the smiles and the superficial uh, platitudes kind of fall apart. And so I don't know what he expected. Um, I don't know if he expected to be crossed, uh, you know, to, to be uh, subjected to cross-examination with the intensity that he was, but it certainly was a high moment of drama to sit in federal court and watch Mark Meadows testify and attempt to justify his actions, um, particularly with respect to bringing together Donald Trump with the Secretary of State, where he made that famous request for 11,000 votes and change. You know, you were right there. So you had a front row seat, uh, so to speak, to to much of this drama. And just as you said, it, you would think that he could have been more aware that the prosecutors would, in fact, uh, pepper him with the types of questions and present the type of evidence that they did. And yet one wonders if he was surprised by that, and if he was surprised by that, why? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think that there's an interesting strategy here too, because there seems to be, or seems to have been, an eagerness in setting these hearings in motion. So, Mark Meadows, like Donald Trump, would have had until October sixth to file f- for removal. Um, if the if the issue was or the game plan was just to delay, 
Um, it would have been smarter for Mark Meadows to start on, in October. Um, but it seems as if Meadows um, really wants this to be you know, done expeditiously and wants this taken care of. I think, you know, bills are expensive, you know, and, and so there's there's a financial issue there. There's certainly there's a stressful dynamic about being a pros- uh, you know, being prosecuted. Um, so his interests are divergent from Donald Trump's in this particular moment, as are most of the co-defendants. And so, um, you know, I, I think maybe there was a hope that, you know, this this would his testimony and the appearance of candor would somehow get him removed into federal court more quickly and the process would be expedited and the jury pool would be more favorable and he could just leverage some something out of this really tough dynamic that he's been put in. Um, and that just didn't pan out. No, and, and it does raise questions about, you know, as you mentioned, he's a politician's politician. You know, what level of entitlement was there that somehow he may have thought that testifying would render a different kind of interaction with the prosecutors, because as you know, as as students are, as law students learn their first year of law school, that it is absolutely uh, cautioned against defendants testifying on their own behalf, unless there is just a such a clear, clear case that the prosecutors have gotten this all wrong. So that was surprising and more to learn from that. But let's turn to the argument made by Meadows, um, which is that uh, he was acting under his official capacities uh, in working with and for the president. Yeah. So for removal to be successful, the motion has to show um, that one, the person in question, the defendant, was a federal officer. Now that that's really easy. Mark Meadows was commissioned to be chief of staff to the president of the United States. That's not a question. The second question, though, is was the defendant acting under the color of law? And the third question is, is there a, a viable federal defense where the defendant shows that they were doing nothing more than was absolutely necessary to carry out their federal duties? And, um, you know, Mark Meadows argue that he was doing the kinds of things that a chief of staff to the president of the United States would do, making contacts, checking on on meetings, um, you know, scheduling meetings, making sure the president was on time, um, you know, bringing different people together, being a gatekeeper of information for the president of the United States and and engaging in that kind of day to day activity landed him in hot water here in Fulton County and that he should be removed as a consequence. Um, you know, Judge Jones basically looked at that and said, no, um, you were, you're being charged not for the things you've done. Um, you're not being charged for bringing people together or getting contact information or, or setting up meetings. You're being charged for entering a conspiracy to overturn the election, which is not within your prerogative um, as a federal official. And in addition, um, he noted that Mark Meadows was engaged in partisan electioneering, which is not permitted under the Hatch Act. So he was engaged in things that were, you know, he's being charged for things that are not within his purview or not within his purview. And he's being charged with things um, that are, are affirmatively per, uh, prohibited under federal law. And then on top of that, um, you know, Judge Jones said that, you know, the federal government has a lot of interest in how elections are run before ballots are cast and counted. But afterwards, um, that's a prerogative of the states. And so that there's really no federal interest that Mark Meadows had in being involved in the ins and outs 
of of the uh, election here in late November and twenty and December and January twenty twenty into twenty twenty one. So, um, you know, and that's really basically how um, how the judge dismissed that that uh, motion. I will note though. Um, there is there is some debate about exactly how this should shake out because um, I think of course for for folks who study and know a lot about Section 1983 and federal civil rights statutes and and particularly how police you know police um, uh, related civil rights cases come about um, oftentimes you know police officers act within the color of law and they're still doing unlawful things right so i it's important for people to re- realize that under color of law does not mean that people were engaged in lawful things they were just do they were using their power and and the authority invested in them by the government to do something um and whether or not that's lawful was a different question and so that's really what we've been struggling here with these cases is you know where where do these lines uh, where should we draw these lines between um people doing things that they're permitted to do under federal law and as a matter of being employed by the federal government what are they doing that's not lawful do they have a defense really in saying that they were doing no more than necessary to carry out their job i mean these are really tricky questions mark meadows had the best case of all the people who are seeking removal so far um and so the fact that he lost has been very foreboding for the other people who this week had um had had removal hearings for themselves as well it does raise questions about whether there are certain things that are being conflated. So Georgia is a red state. Maybe some are saying it's purple, given the uh, work that's taken place in recent years. Stacey Abrams comes to mind and many of the other uh, women who've been elected to office there, the diversity of office holders from there, the two senators from the state of Georgia, certainly making it outwardly um, appear purple, uh, but internally um a red state in terms of the governor and state's legislature. And one wonders whether there was a bit of hubris on the part of the uh, people who've been indicted in this case, that somehow that would make their case a different kind of case than what it is that you were describing. Well, I think it is certainly true that Georgia has become a politically diverse and much more competitive state um, in, in large part because of organizers, um, and, and demographic changes. But yes, there are some very baseline conservative, um, you know, um, I, I think trends as well. But it what, also seems that with the conservative trends as well, that there are some that are standing up and saying, don't interfere in our elections, that we may have a Republican legislature and a Republican governor, um, and the Secretary of State was a Republican too. But there are times in which the lines are brightly drawn and we can see when lines are crossed, or at least they're perhaps articulating something along those lines. Yeah, I, I think George is interesting because you do have people um, who certainly are, you know, in the governor's office and the secretary of state's office who are much more, I, I don't want to say anti-Trump, but are Trump averse um, and who have repeatedly stood up for the validity of the 2020 election. Um, and have called them repeatedly fair, transparent, and accurate. At the same time, um, you know, the governor has been, you know, know, kind of lukewarm in his support for Trump. Um, We have passed voter restrictive legislation in the state in response to the big lie and a lot of the conspiracy theories that Donald Trump perpetrated and, and fed to his followers. 
Um, and so it's a very, you know, it's kind of this very interesting uh, balancing act that the Republicans in the state have have made. Um, and of course, we've got on the other end of, you know, the extremists like Marjorie Taylor Greene and other um, members of Congress and, and you know, people in the legislature who um, adamantly support Donald Trump. I don't know what it is exactly um, that, you know, how that might play out into the psyche of these co-defendants. Um, but what I do think is, is that there is a, in, at least in respect to removal, I think there's this fear of being tried in Fulton County, Georgia, because Fulton County, um, it's a it's a pretty diverse county. Um, it's about 70, 30 uh, Biden County. It's it's not um, you know, it, it's not, it's not, I mean, it's not, um, it's certainly left of center, but it's, you know, also, um, it's not, not really a conservative stronghold in the sense of, um, even where the most conservative pockets of Fulton County exist, they're pretty country club Republicans. Like they're, they're Brian Kemp, Brad Raffensperger supporters. And they're not Marjorie Taylor Greene supporters. And so I think these co-defendants want federal removal because that would enlarge the jury pool, um, to more rural and ex-urban areas in Georgia where they think, I, I suspect, that they'll have a better jury pool. And so um, the politics of the moment are certainly driving legal decisions and legal strategy in this case, particularly in the federal removal. And of course, it plays a part in how Donald Trump has attacked Fonnie Willis and the Fulton County District Attorney's Office for being political and, and all sorts of, um, you know, different different things that he's alleged. Well, that's that's right. And there's much to be said uh, about uh, the former president and the kinds of innuendos that have been spread by his supporters, by himself and his supporters, in light of the fact that she is a woman, that she's a woman of color, that she's a black woman. Uh, certainly more to be said on all of that. Our time goes by so quickly, and we learn so much from you, Professor Anthony Michael Christ. I want to thank you for joining us. And before I let you go, which I don't want because there's so much, but we're <laughs> going to get you back. Um, I, any highlights we we always ask you know what the silver lining is and i think the last time that we were together i you know thought well it's a kind of struggle to sort of think about a silver lining in the context of all of this in the backdrop of january 6th and the backdrop of efforts with the big lie and to try to get the uh 2020 election results thwarted but what do you see as a silver lining to all of this and what lies ahead in georgia well, I think we're in for a lot of grief and a lot of uh, drama and a lot more contentious um, politics as a result of what's happening in Fulton County. But I will say, if I had to pick one silver lining, it's that I, I suspect that we're going to have most of these defendants in Fulton County Superior Court being tried and not in federal court. And the benefit of that, I, I hope, is that um, our trial proceedings, unlike in federal court, are televised and they are open to the public and much more transparent than federal court is. And I so I, I hope that the the benefit of that is that the American public can see for themselves the evidence, the witnesses, um, the, the 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 narrative that's being construed and the defenses and make a better or have a better understanding of what happened here in 2020 and how dangerously close we were to losing our democracy. And and I would hope that by witnessing that, they will be able to have a, a firmer resolve um, to do better in the future. 
It's been my pleasure to have you join us again. Thank you so much, Professor Anthony Michael Christ. We really appreciate you joining us and looking forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. I want to thank each of you for tuning in for the full story and engaging with us. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode, where you know we'll be reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. For more information about what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com and be sure to subscribe. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America and being unbought and unbossed and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever it is that you receive your podcast. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners by bringing this hard-hitting content in which you've come to expect and rely upon by subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us, please do so. Email us at ontheissues at MsMagazine.com. We do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Michelle Goodwin and Kathy Spiller are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll, Oliver Hogg, and also Allison Whelan. Our social media content producer is Sophia Panagrahi. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Natalie Holland, and music by Chris J. Lee.